You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. 1 to 5 and then 27 to 31 and then Genesis 2, 8 to 15. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And um, from 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then from 2.8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Well, it is uh, such a privilege to be with you here at your church camp. Thank you very, very much for having me and uh, for this opportunity to spend time with you in God's word. How about I pray briefly as we... um, As we begin, thank you so much, Father, for this privilege of being together and this wonderful opportunity to uh, reflect on your word, to think about it, uh, and to see its importance in our lives and its relevance to us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would open to us the truth of your word and press it on our hearts. And we pray that as that happens, our souls would indeed be refreshed by you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years, I've uh, flown into a few different countries, uh, as you do, and I find that um, whenever I fly into a new country, they, the, the government there wants to get to know me, uh, which is really very lovely. I, I find it quite sweet, really. They, they ask me questions like, you know, what's your name, where are you from? want to know what I do for a job, um, 
they they uh, ask about why I'm visiting and how long I want to stay and what my passport number is and all sorts of sweet things like that. Uh, so many governments around the world have gotten to know me, which is, is yeah, just sweet. Uh, but of course, the questions they ask I mean they don't know me very well. If if they were to get to know me better, they would have to give me opportunity to say more. Opportunity, really, to tell some stories about my life, uh, where I grew up, um, the things I love doing, stories about my family, stories about places I've been, things I'm into. If they really want to get to know me, they, did, they need to hear some stories about the things that I'm passionate about, the things that I fear and dread, the things that excite me and move me. That's how we get to know people, isn't it? We need to listen to the stories of their lives. And that's also how we get to know God and the gospel. The Bible is God's story. And it's through the story of the Bible that we really come to know who God is. The Bible's full of stories. Actually, about two-thirds of the Bible is narrative story. But the Bible's not merely a collection of individual stories with moral lessons. Uh, I remember as a boy, um, winter's night in Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand, Dad would light the, um, the open fire and he would stoke it to the max and the thing roaring away. And then on a good winter's evening, he'd crack open uh, Aesop's Fables. And uh, I don't know if you know Aesop's Fables. You probably know at least one of them, the hare and the tortoise. And um, you know, Aesop's Fables, just wonderful s- stories. And, and each of his fables is a, is a different independent story. You don't need any of the others to make sense of it. And each fable has a, a moral lesson uh, to take to heart. And that's how some people read the Bible, uh, basically a collection of independent stories, and each story has a moral lesson, and if you take it to heart, you'll become a better person. That's often how the Bible's read, but it's actually not remotely how the Bible is meant to be read. It's not actually just a collection of stories. The Bible itself is one big story. And it's not a story that chiefly has a moral lesson. It it does have many, many lessons. But it's a far greater story than simply a moral lesson at the end. And so what I want us to do uh, now and over this weekend is, first of all, just think for a few minutes about how the Bible story works. And then we're going to start going through the Bible's story. And I've really set myself a ridiculous task. It's quite stupid, but we're going to do the whole Bible this weekend. Um, Someone asked before, what are you preaching? I said, oh, the Bible. Yeah, but which bit? Well, kind of Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, So, And and we'll just take a journey through that and look at at the big stages, the verse-by-verse exposition, uh, the big stages of the Bible's story. But first of all, let's think about how the story of the Bible works. The story from Genesis 
to Revelation, from, from the garden to the city. How does it work? Well, the, the first thing that, that I've kind of already said is this story enables us to know God. This is the way God reveals himself. And interestingly, God didn't give us a catechism or a confession of faith. They are very useful tools distilling what the Bible teaches us. But God has actually given us loads and loads of stories. And it's through the stories of the Bible that we come to really understand what God is like. It's as though story is his favorite way of revealing himself. And Many of you probably know the, the kind of stories in the Bible. There are so many of them, aren't there? Stories about floods and famines and fights and fortunes. Stories about old men and widows and fools and lovers. Uh, stories about rich people and poor people and outcasts and runaways. But in every story of the Bible, God is the hero. And that's always the way to read the stories of the Bible. When you read any stories about David or Saul or uh, Paul or any other Bible character, the human character is never the hero of the story. God is the hero of every story. And every story is revealing to us something about who he is and what he's like. So the, the Bible is there and the story of the Bible is there so that we get to know God. But the second thing is that that Bible story is also the key to knowing ourselves. In a way, that's surprising, but it's hugely important. We don't successfully get to know ourselves by just knowing our own story. We come to know ourselves as we come to know God's story. John Calvin said that really the two great pursuits of theology are knowledge of God and in the light of that, knowledge of ourselves. He said this, uh, Calvin said, It is clear that a, a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. The only way we'll really understand ourselves is to first contemplate who God is. And as we come to know God through his story, in a much deeper and more profound and often challenging and convicting way, we come to understand our own story. But we can go further. Not only does the story of the Bible help us know God and know ourselves, but the Bible story then starts to rewrite the stories of our lives. Imagine you go to a, um, a, a wonderful uh, stage play, maybe go to a musical. Um, any of you going to Hamilton? Yes? We have a Hamilton or two taker. Like you, you go to a musical like that, you go to Hamilton, and it's just, you know, it will be amazing. Um, the, the staging is remarkable. The sound is phenomenal. Uh, the performance is brilliant. 
And it's the kind of thing, you go away from that and you're excited and, and you relive it and you dream about it. It was just marvellous. Well, good for you. That's, that's great. You saw a great performance. But it would be altogether different, wouldn't it, if in the crowd afterwards, as you're mixing and mingling before you go home, the director comes and finds you and taps you on the shoulder and says, tomorrow night I want you up on stage. No, no, no. He, he says, don't, don't panic. You, you're not going to have the main role. That's already been assigned, but I want you on stage. Well, that, that would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? It would be remarkable. But that is exactly what God does with his story. He taps us on the shoulder through the gospel and says, I want you to be part of the great drama of redemption. And he says, don't worry, you're not going to have the main role. That was assigned to Jesus a long time ago, and he's got no understudies. But I want you on stage. I want you to be part of the great drama of redemption. And that means that as we become part of the story of the Bible and the story of what God is doing in this world, it does completely rewrite the stories of our lives. Maybe, maybe you were part of a small story, really. A story um, that kind of goes like this for a lot of people. The story of... Uh, trying to get a good ATAR, to try and get into a good course, and then getting a job, and then getting a partner, and then getting some kids, and then getting a house, and then uh, eventually getting an overseas holiday, and getting some grandkids, that's the stage that I'm up to, uh, and then getting a comfortable retirement, and then getting buried and pushing daisies forever. That, that sadly is the small story of many people's lives. That story is driving them and often driving them crazy. But what happens when we come to know the Lord Jesus is, is we get caught up into God's story. And even if our story continues to have a, a lot of mundane stuff in it, and, and it usually does, that mundane stuff is transformed because now it's part of something huge, something massive that God is doing in this world. And we're, we're going to try and see some of that this weekend as we see how we become part of these different stages in the Bible's great story. That story rewrites the stories of our lives. And then there's one more thing that happens just as we think about how the, the whole Bible story works. The Bible story then, as we live it, as we are part of it, as it helps us know ourselves because we now know God, the Bible story is actually brilliantly designed to renew and restore and refresh our souls. Don't you find that the stories of the world tend often to be draining? Uh, there are so many grim stories and sad stories around us. 
watch the news, and afterwards you just go, it's just so discouraging. But it's not just that the stories out there are wearying. Daily life is kind of wearying, isn't it? I mean, even on a good day, you have friends, good friends, sharing with you their broken heart. There are church members who you love and really care for going through deep trials. You listen to them and you pray for them. Our kids make choices that burden our hearts. There are tensions at work that wear us down. After listening to people's stories for a day, we can feel pretty flattened, pretty weary. But the remarkable thing that we find is that as we read God's story, it has this way of renewing us and recharging us and refreshing us day after day after day. And it's not that everything in the story is good. There's some dreadful stuff in the Bible, some really appalling stuff. But the story as a whole, when you read any part of it as part of the whole, the story has a way of refreshing our souls. That's what I want us to to see uh, as we move on. On page five of the little booklet, if you've got it there, there's a, a, a wee um, uh, diagram that maps six stages in the Bible's story. Uh, creation, fall, promise, gospel, mission, and new creation. Uh, th- those words and th- those six little symbols about you know creation... God coming down to create, the the fall going wrong, the promise pointing forward, the cross of Christ, moving forward, the mission, um, then a new creation, the new heaven and the new earth coming down. Uh, They come from Christopher Wright's book. I'm preaching the Old Testament for all it's worth. But I want to work with the words that I've put below those signs because I think this is the way that the, the story of the Bible actually works on our soul. And the the first stage of the story, the first act in this great drama of redemption is about beauty. And that's where we're we're just going to sit for for the rest of our time now. Stage one, act one, beauty. Now the story of the Bible begins, you know it, Well, I'm sure you don't really need to look it up. But Genesis 1, verse 1, the story of the Bible begins with God. And the first thing we learn about God in the story is that he is creative. In the beginning, God created Uh, He created out of nothing. By the sheer power of his word, he created. I have trouble creating things out of something. Uh, 
Who can comprehend the power of someone who can create just by speaking it into being? How cool would that be? Uh, students here, let there be an essay. And behold, there was an essay, and it was very good. <laughs> HD. Uh, homeowners, let there be a renovated bathroom. And behold, there was a renovated bathroom, and it was very good. I mean, magnificent, isn't it? It's phenomenal. And actually, you know, God did that, we're told, and what he created was massive, vast. He created the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the entire universe, some 100 to 200 billion galaxies, for goodness sake, each with hundreds of billions of stars. To be honest, it's quite excessive. But it was a display of his glory. The sheer size of the universe, which is more and more being discovered, is, is a display of the immensity and the vastness of a God who spoke it into being. But we will not be truly drawn to worship God simply because of his greatness. In fact, greatness might drive us from him. Greatness can be intimidating. Vastness, hugeness can be threatening. Jonathan Edwards said, Our greatest need is not to see the greatness of God, but the goodness of God. Our greatest need is not to see the greatness of God, but the goodness of God. And that is actually exactly what creation points us to. God points us to his goodness in the beauty of creation. Creation's beautiful because God is a God of beauty. He placed the first people that he created in his own image in a garden, not a detention centre. He placed them in a place that was beautiful, a place of abundance, enticing food, large rivers, precious stones. And it even said in one of those verses in Genesis 2 there, good gold. I like the idea of good gold. Like I reckon all gold's pretty good, but there was good gold there. And I love this thought that that. The God who creates and creates a garden and places the man and the woman there is not merely practical. God is not utilitarian. He could have fed and nourished Adam and Eve with you know, very efficient little tablets. And a lot of people just, you know, just about live on supplements anyway. God could have done supplements right from the start, but he didn't. There's exotic fruits. There's, there's Beautiful trees that's enticing and delightful. God commands them to reproduce. But, but they're not reproducing in, in test tubes and, and through chemical processes. He makes the, the sexual act intimate and beautiful and highly desirable. 
God is a God of pleasure. He's a God of delight. And that's why we look at creation and so often we just say, wow, isn't that beautiful? Because it is. God made it like that. Um, some of you driving here last night may have seen the sunset. Did, did you see the sunset last night? It was beautiful, magnificent. It was, it was tremendous. Red, red, red sun. Uh, on this island, there are cute little penguins, rugged coastline. I was in Hall's Gap for a holiday uh, a little while ago. And, and the, you know, the creation there is just spectacular. And there are all these crazy animals, elegant wallabies, which is just a ridiculous design. Who would have thought of that? And, um, you know, scorching cockatoos and kookaburras laughing like crazy. I kind of get the feeling when, when God did Australian animals, he was having a bit of fun. Creation is magnificent, it's beautiful, it's, it's delightful. And God looked at all that he'd made. He stood back and he said, that's very good. I look at the things that I have made and I usually say, ah, I think that'll do. It's okay, but don't look there. Everything I make is flawed. Everything I make is a wee bit disappointing. God created an entire universe and he said, that is very good. And so we too rightly admire it. As people made in God's image, God has hardwired into us a love of beauty. We crave beauty. We crave beautiful things and we crave excellence. Just think of the human obsession with beautiful people and exotic locations. Magazine covers plastered with pretty faces and amazing places. That's what we love. And we should enjoy beautiful things. Friends, enjoy creation. Take time to notice it. See what God did by the power of his speech. Enjoy the warmth of the sunshine. Enjoy the autumn colours at the moment. They're just magnificent, aren't they? They're brilliant. Enjoy what human beings created in God's image have created. Enjoy wonderful music, good literature, beautiful photography. Enjoy the wonder of the coffee bean. You know, these, these are good things that God has given for us. But as you enjoy creation, it's not enough to enjoy creation alone. For the beauty of creation points us to the beauty of God himself. We're so used to speaking, aren't we, about physical beauty. Usually when we talk about beauty, we immediately think physical beauty. But there is moral beauty as well. We know about beautiful actions and people have a beautiful character. And it might be in quite little things. The, um, uh, two or three weeks ago, uh, Wendy and I were in Melbourne and I, and I took her out, thought I'd take her out somewhere a bit special. So we were in uh, Macca's on Swanson Street <laughs> and um, 
Uh, we were queuing up to uh, order our ice cream because uh, it was a date. And, um, and as we queued there, a, um, a homeless guy came in. And it's one of those moments when people look at their phones and sort of, you know, avoid eye contact. But there was a, a girl there, I don't know how old, 20-ish, and she just quietly went up to this homeless guy. She took him to the touch screen. She tapped in some stuff. She gave him the ticket. And then she just went back and scrolled on her phone like the rest of us. And he now stood in the line with his ticket, waiting for his meal. And my wife nudged me and she said, isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful, isn't it? It's simple, but we know that compassion and mercy and kindness is beautiful. In 1 Peter 3, it talks about the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. A beautiful person may not look pretty, but a beautiful heart is lovely to behold. And God is supremely beautiful. His beauty actually is his holiness. The absolute purity and total perfection of every attribute of God. That's what's beautiful. It says in Psalm 96 verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of his holiness. There is the absolute holiness and the beautiful holiness of his love, the beauty of his kindness, the beauty of his justice. Eden actually wasn't just a beautiful garden. Eden was a sanctuary. It was a place where God met with the people that he had created. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There in that garden, Adam and Eve served God, and there they communed with God. They had relationship with the God who had made them. And our souls crave that. They crave relationship with someone who's absolutely pure and loving and merciful and compassionate and good and true and right. And so uh, in that psalm that um, Aaron read before, Psalm 27, it has those beautiful words. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To gaze, to steadily behold, to contemplate, to meditate deeply on the beauty of God. But how do we do that? How do we gaze at the beauty of God? Well, God made himself flesh. God came in visible form. And so the beauty of God is supremely revealed in the beauty of Jesus Christ.
The beauty of Christ is not in his looks. Uh, It actually says in Isaiah 53 verse 2, prophesying of Christ, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I don't know what Jesus looked like, but it's saying there, well, his, his looks aren't what's the appealing thing. And yet, he was the most beautiful person who ever walked the face of this earth. And the gospel stories show us again and again what a beautiful person Jesus is. Uh, Just think about some of them. Wasn't it beautiful when a leper came up to him and said, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and touches this unclean leper and says to him, I am. Be clean. (laughs) He was willing, willing to touch the untouchable and to cleanse him. (laughs) That was beautiful compassion and a beautiful use of his power and his grace. It was beautiful when Jesus was at the temple and he was watching people bring their offerings and put them in the, in the offering box. And he sees this widow come and she has these two copper coins. They're worth almost nothing. She's poor as a church mouse. And she pops them in the box. And Jesus doesn't despise her or look down on her or, or just ignore this pathetic little gift. But he says, she's given more than all the rest. And it's beautiful. He honors her and he sees her heart. Wasn't it beautiful when on the cross Jesus turns to the man next to him who was a criminal being put to death for his wrongdoing. And because that criminal has just expressed faith in Jesus, Jesus says to him, Friend, today you'll be with me in paradise. You look at the Gospels, you will see so many beautiful things. But for us, what a beautiful thing it is that though other people might might judge you, they might even judge you on your looks because you don't look so beautiful as our culture wants you to. And though they might not forgive you for stuff that you've done, And though your sin does condemn you, what a beautiful thing it is that Jesus loved you and gave his life for you. And he accepts you and he welcomes you and he pardons you and he's your advocate. He loves you with an everlasting love. We see God's beauty and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And friends, it is that beauty that now renews our souls. Our souls yearn for what Jesus gives us. We long for relationships where there's love and faithfulness and forgiveness and patience and warmth. And in Jesus, we find that fully.
And I think one of our problems is, is our world is conditioning us to chase for cheap plastic beauty. We're chasing beauty that doesn't satisfy our souls. We scroll endlessly through photos on Insta and Facebook, supposedly looking at beautiful things and beautiful people and beautiful places and the beautiful life other people have, and mine sucks. All the stuff just just dissatisfies our souls. We think that endless Netflix or, or, or endless entertainment will satisfy our souls. We think it will be in the house that we buy or the holiday that we have or just, you know, just coffee, you know, a flat white. That's what I want. I just want a flat white. Well, flat is right. Like it just, it, it can't do anything for your soul, can it? But as we go to Jesus, his beauty satisfies our souls. And even more wonderfully, I think, his beauty is transformative. As we dwell on his beauty, we are inwardly renewed. If I look at a beautiful person... (laughs) I do not become more beautiful. It's a real pity, but it doesn't work like that. I've tried. It doesn't work. But if you look on the beauty of God and soak in it and dwell on it and meditate on it, you will actually in time start to become a more beautiful person. His beauty rubs off on us. His goodness recalibrates our souls. We are inwardly renewed by gazing on the beauty of the Lord. Let me finish. We've got here a beauty package that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, But it's unlike any package you'll find at a day spa or at some beauty therapist. Here's the package. And it's absolutely free. And I'm really into beauty packages that are free. Here's the beauty package. A beautiful world created by a beautiful God who has made himself known in a beautiful saviour who renews our souls and makes us more beautiful people. Isn't that a good package? How do we live this part of the story, the first part of the Bible's great narrative? Simply this, we feed our souls on the beauty of God. And maybe you need to dial down your exposure to other sources of beauty and to fake and plastic beauty. Dial down your exposure to it in order that you might dial up two things. Just spend more time looking at the beauty of what God created. Enjoy creation. Enjoy the work of God's hands. And as you enjoy and and make time to notice and admire and see the beauty of creation, remember your creator. Remember that that is appointed to his beauty. And so secondly then, dwell daily if you can. Dwell daily if you can on at least one aspect of the beauty of God. Choose an aspect of 
his beauty to dwell on, think over, meditate on. And as you gaze less at yourself and less at fake beauty, as you gaze more at the beauty of God and his grace, your soul will be refreshed. Shall I pray? Thank you so much, Lord, that you are a beautiful God and you've made a beautiful world. And we pray that you would point our souls away from fake beauty and point us more and more to yourself. And as we gaze on the beauty of the Lord, refresh our souls and make us more beautiful within. For Jesus' sake. Amen.